0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. I have mine, too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where you need to go. Last week, we saw a more encouragement about ministry as Paul talked to us about the the two motivations that are behind what he does. He talked about fear as one motivator, not fear of being abused, not fear of being oppressed, not fear of being condemned, but fear in a healthy respect where he desires uh, more than anything to please Christ, knowing that at the end of his days he will stand before Christ on a judgment seat and give an account for all of his life and receive recompense for the things that he has done in the flesh. He says, I want to do everything to please him and that includes preaching the gospel so we paul we saw paul talk about fear as a motivator then he said and love is also a motivator as he thinks about christ on the cross dying for him as he thinks about christ on the cross dying for others that have some of them have yet to hear the gospel of jesus christ as he thinks about that great love that god has shown he is compelled to action he is compelled to go and preach the gospel and we need to have those same two motivators in our lives for ministry fear and love. A lot of times we think that those are opposites, that those are in disagreement with each other. But as we read Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians we see that they are really flip sides of the same coin. We are motivated as Paul was by fear and love. And we should be busy about preaching the gospel. We should be busy about persuading men to believe and follow after Jesus. This week we are going to look at a text that is absolutely dynamite. In fact, at one point in preparation uh, for this week I thought you know what I should do? I should just read it and then drop the mic and walk off stage like a rapper, right? It is just so good and so powerful that I don't know uh, that it needs a lot of explanation. So basically, what I'm going to do today is read the text, give you just some basic restatements of each, each verse, and draw attention to some important parts of each verse, and then make some applications and just let you, for some of you, just delight in it. Just delight in these great truths and cherish them and enjoy them and rejoice over them. And for some of you, though, you're going to hear these things and there's going to be a resistance in your heart to them. You're going to, there's going to be this, uh, don't, how can this possibly be? H- how, can this, how can it be that easy? How can it be that sweet? How can it be that good? Because you know about your own heart. You know about your own sinfulness. And my prayer for you is that God will break that down. That God will show you, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but Christ came for you and came to die for you and you can be saved. There is hope uh, for all kinds of people on, on the earth today. So let's check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, going through verse 22 today. Listen to this and just rejoice over it. It says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for this work of reconciliation that You have done. We have caused the problem. We have caused the divide. We have caused the break. And You have brought reconciliation. And You have done this through Your Son, through His death and burial and resurrection. You have forgiven our trespasses. You have brought us back to You. You have given us life and hope. You've changed everything for us. And then You have assigned to us the ministry of reconciliation that we might go and proclaim this good news to the nations. God, I thank You for this. As one of Your people, I thank You for this. I want to understand it more. I want to cherish it more. I want to relish it more. I want to enjoy it more. And I want to respond to it more and more every day. It's what we want as a church. And God, we know there are people in the room today who are far from you, who don't know these truths, who have not experienced this forgiveness and reconciliation, who don't know about this grace, and therefore want nothing to do with the ministry of proclamation. God, I pray that today you'll meet with those folks, that... that that you'll do what only you can do in convicting them of their sin, convicting them of the reality of your judgment against them because of their sin. God, teach them that what they deserve rightly is condemnation, eternal punishment, eternal separation from you is what they deserve. It's what we all deserve. But God, also teach, show, reveal, reveal, that You love them in spite of that, that You sent Your Son to die for them while they were still sinners. God, I pray that You'll show men and women and boys and girls the beauty of the cross and the glory of this reconciliation that You have brought. And God, I pray that their response will be one of faith and repentance, that they will believe and trust completely in You, depend on You as the reconciler, and that they will repent and turn away from sins and serve You with everything they have, God. Pray that that miracles will take place in this room today, and that you will get the glory in it all. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. This is good stuff, right, this week? Good stuff? Just reading it is enough, right? Uh, It seems like it is, and you could be the first, the very first ones to Kentucky Fried Chicken today. But we want to talk about a little bit so that we can relish it, so that we can enjoy it all the more, and maybe understand it a little bit better. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 starts with the word therefore, just like just about every sentence in Second Corinthians. It's all building upon itself. We want to be mindful of the whole and not just the little parts of it. I think the therefore in verse 16 stretches back to verses 14 and 15, where Paul clearly articulated the substitutionary atonement of Christ, His death on the cross on our behalf. Look what he says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again, therefore. Right? He's applying that substitutionary principle. Christ died for us, therefore. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know Him in this way no longer. Basically, what Paul is teaching us, is that his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, his understanding of the substitutionary atonement changed everything for him. Right? It changed absolutely everything for him. But the interesting thing is, nothing really changed that day on the road to Damascus, did it? Nothing in the world. It's not as if Paul was walking on the road to Damascus, and he met Jesus, and the world changed. That's not the way it happened, was it? No. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Paul changed. All the change took place on the inside so that when he went on to Damascus, he didn't look for believers to punish them. He looked to believers to fellowship with them. As he went on about his business, he didn't talk about Christ as this liar and cheater and manipulator any longer. He talked about Christ as the Messiah and Savior of the world, right? Everything changed for Paul. And so now he says in these verses, when he looks around, he doesn't look at people the same way he used to. He doesn't look at Christ the same way he used to, because this great change has been wrought in him. Look what he says in these verses. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't see them the same way any longer. And then he says, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, there don't think he's talking about having a personal relationship with Christ before his conversion. I think he's simply thinking about how he thought of Christ before his conversion. He thought of Christ as a scandal, as a liar and a cheater. And he says, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Paul's perception, his perspective of everything changed at his conversion. And that's what happens at our conversion. Everything changes for us. Everything in our lives changes. The way we look at people, the way we look at Christ, the way we look at service, the way we look at suffering. Everything changes when we come to know Christ. So the question for us in verse 16 is, how do we see Christ today? How do you see Christ today? When you hear us talk about this one who came, who was born in a manger or a cave... Right. This one who was celebrated and honored and worshiped by wise men, this one who grew up living a life without sin, this one who was nailed to the cross and died and was buried in a tomb and rose again. When you hear us talk about that, how do you respond to that? Do you say foolishness? Ridiculousness? Are are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's what you're presenting to me today? Is that the way you respond to all this talk about Christ? Or do you respond to this by saying, Oh yeah, tell me, tell me some more. Tell me some more. I want to hear some more. Let's sing about it. Let's write about it. Let's dance about it. Tell me more about this. The question is, how do you respond to Christ? How do you see Him? Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that some people see it as foolishness, right? The word of cross is foolishness to whom? To those who are perishing, but... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Amen? So the question is, how do you see Christ today? As farce and fairy tale or as wisdom and power from God? Secondly, by way of application of verse 16, how do you consider people around you? What lens do you see the people around you? Listen to what one scholar says. He says, The shadow of the cross fell across Paul's view every time he looked at other people. He saw believers as new creations in Christ. And he saw unbelievers as people in need of Christ. This perspective changed his ministry. This perspective should change our ministry. When we look around at our brothers and sisters, many of whom are gathered in this room... When we look around at each other as believers, we should see new creatures in Christ. Behold, the old is gone, and the new has come. That's how we should look at each other. And when we look, maybe even around this room, certainly outside the walls of this building, and we see lost people, we should see people who are desperately in need of Christ. And that should change our perspective. That should change our ministry. That should compel us to preach the gospel, right? Paul says in verse sixteen, when he met Jesus, everything changed. Now we recognize no one according to the flesh. Beware of recognizing people according to the flesh. See them by the Spirit. He says we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet we no longer know Him this way. That we see Him spiritually as well. That's what it happens. What happens when you meet Christ? Everything changes for you. Nothing changes in the world. The world is the same but you see it through new eyes. My question is, do you have those new eyes? Look at verse 17. This is fantastic. This is huge. Look what he says. He says, therefore, again, every sentence starts with that word, doesn't it? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I want you to notice two things in this verse. First, I want you to see this as an indicative that hangs over the life of every follower of Jesus. It is a a name. It is a label that hangs over everyone who follows Jesus. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, that's who you are. You're not the same old guy you were before. You are a brand new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. We showed the world that when we baptized you, right? The old was put in the grave, and behold, the new has come, right? That's who you are. This is exciting news, isn't it? What if if we could tell you that you could be brand new today, right? This is who you are. The old is gone. The new has come. This is the indicative. This is the label that hangs over every believer in Jesus. And you should be encouraged by that. You should be motivated by that. You should be compelled by that. And you should celebrate that today. First of all, it's an indicative. Second of all, it is a hope. It is a hope for every lost person in this room. When we talk about believers in verse 17, we put the emphasis on the word is. He is a new creature. When we talk about unbelievers in verse 17, we put the emphasis on if. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There is hope for you. There is hope for you when you think there is no hope at all. When you think who you are and what you have done and what you are doing is beyond hope, I want you to hear there is hope. He doesn't just take you and make you better. He takes you and puts you in the grave and he raises up a brand new you. Right? We're not talking about improvement here. We're talking about resurrection. He makes a brand new creature out of you. That means there's hope for everyone, right? The old is gone and the new is come if you are in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new is come. I read one scholar that said the way this reads in Greek, and I don't believe him because I looked at it, is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creature. I like it, right? If, any, if anyone is in Christ, boom, new creature. New creature, not just better old creature, brand new creature. That's what the gospel offers. That's the offer of the gospel, new life. Some of you need that desperately because you look and you say, this is a mess. This is a disaster. In the words of one of my best friends, this is a train wreck. He will put the train wreck in the ground. Christ will put the train wreck in the ground and make you a brand new train. This is good, good news. For those of us who know Christ, that's what we are, new creatures. For those of us, those of you who don't know Christ, that's what you can be, brand new creature. Now, this text is emphasizing the reality of that change, the reality of this new creation. Surely we all know that there is still, after we are in Christ, a struggle between the old and the new. But that's a, that's a story for a different time. That's not this text. That's not what this text is emphasizing. We can read Romans chapter 7 about that. We can read a lot of other places to talk about that. But here today, we're not going to do that. We're just going to celebrate what it says right here, that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. Hallelujah for that. Amen? Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul's going to get into how this great transaction happens. Look what he says. He says, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. You need to get what he says there. He says three things because he's going to say those exact three things again in the next verse. This is Huge. How does all of this happen? How does the reconciliation take place? First things first, Paul says this is God's work. We need to get that clear today that the work of reconciliation, the work of conversion, the work of salvation, it is God's work, right? It is God who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord, He is mighty to save. And you and I, we need saving. We need a rescue. We need resurrection. And he's the only one that can do it, right? It is God's work, this business of salvation. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, Now all these things are from God. Not from you, not from Paul, not from your grandparents or your Sunday school teacher. All these things are from God, right? So when that great change takes place, who gets the praise? You? Your grandparents? Your Sunday school teacher, the preacher? No, who gets the praise? God gets the praise. It's His work. All these things are from Him. And so we glorify Him when lives are changed. The next thing you want to see is that He reconciled us to Himself. Look at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself. This is astonishing, right? We're going to talk about this more in a minute. We're the ones who did wrong. We're the ones who offended, we're the ones who sinned, and yet he's the one who seeks the reconciliation. He's the one who reconciles us to himself. It's not the way it works in, in our world. It's not the way it works in our relationships. If someone wrongs us, or we if someone wrongs us, we expect them to come to us to seek reconciliation. If we wrong someone, we rightly go to them seeking reconciliation. But what God has done is He has come to us and reconciled us to himself this is incredibly gracious and we'll talk about it more in a minute he says all these things are from god who reconciled us to himself how did he do it through christ we'll talk about that a whole lot in just a minute and then he says this and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation right so this is it it's all from god right he reconciles us to himself how does he do that through christ and once he's done that what does he do He gives those who have been reconciled the ministry of reconciliation to take the gospel to the nations, right? So look what he says in the next verse. It's the same thing over again, but he adds two significant parts. He says in verse 19, namely that God, right, because it's his work, was was in Christ, we've already talked about that, reconciling the world to himself. Let's stop there because that's different from verse 18. He's reconciling the world to himself. And I think the best way to understand that word world there is to understand it the way John uses it also. John will talk about the world as the system, the system of, re- of understanding, the system of belief, the system of life that is in rebellion against God, right? There's the kingdom and the world, right? There's God and the world and the world is rebelling. The world is against him. The world is opposed to him. The world is sinning against him right? That's what he means by the world. So when he says here that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, this should blow our minds, right? He's not reconciling good guys to himself. He's reconciling the bad guys to himself. And that's who we are. That's who we are apart from Christ. We are part of the world that he is reconciling to himself. That word world is absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. The next thing we need to see in verse 19, he says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, he says, not counting their trespasses against them. This is a big idea, and it is the idea of forgiveness. If there is going to be reconciliation between parties, where there is offense, where there is sin, there has to be forgiveness. And what you need to hear here is that there is a big problem between us and the Lord. There is a big problem between us and the Lord that must be dealt with in order for there to be reconciliation. Let me give you a couple of examples. First, I want you to know that the problem between us and the Lord is a big, big problem. And so, therefore, the work of reconciliation is going to have to be big, big work, okay? Suppose Brad and I got crossed up somehow, and I offended Brad by uh, not returning a text message, or maybe I forgot his birthday, right? That's a little thing, right? And so the work of reconciliation that would need to happen between me and Brad, that would be small work, right? Small scale, little work. Suppose, on the other hand, I forgot Laura's birthday, right? Or I forgot our anniversary, right? Bigger offense. Therefore, bigger work of reconciliation, right? Her her forgiveness of me which would happen eventually, right? Her forgiveness of me would be greater than Brad's forgiveness of me because the offense was different, right? So let's think about that then in terms of God's reconciliation to us. How big is the offense between us and Him? Eternal. Eternal. Infinite. And He does that work. And so the work of reconciliation that He does for us is huge. And the forgiveness that He brings to us is epic, right? And that's what we need to see. He says this whole thing. Again, he says, namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The biggest problem we have is sin. And it is a very real obstacle between us and him. And God is willing to forgive us to not count our trespasses against us. And in just a minute, he's going to tell us how he can do that. How he can be just and be righteous and still not count our trespasses against us. Alright? Stay tuned. That's going to be good. I'm so glad the Christmas tree is there today, by the way. Because most of you can't see the clock. (laughs) We may move it a little bit for next week so none of you can see the clock. (laughs) Then he says this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us, who've been reconciled, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation, right? That's the pattern we're going to go by when we get to application. God, God reconciling us to himself, doing that through Christ and this sacrifice, and then once we've been reconciled, we get the ministry of reconciliation. We are given that responsibility and that honor. It is a glorious thing. Look what he says in verse 20. He's going to describe a little bit of that ministry of reconciliation in verse 20. He says, therefore, again, it's the same. It's there everywhere. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A couple of big things going on here. One is this idea of being an ambassador. You know what an ambassador does? He represents someone in authority. And this specific word for ambassador is someone who represents the king in bringing terms of peace between between enemies. He brings an offer of peace between enemies. That's the word that Paul uses there. And he says, that's what we are. We are representatives of the king. We speak with authority from the king. Now, let me ask you this. That's the way God's got it set up. Why wouldn't he just go to the nations himself? If if his desire is to get this word to the nations, why doesn't he go to the nations? Why Why doesn't he just go to Africa and India and China and the United States? Why doesn't he just go himself and proclaim the gospel? He could do that, right? He could totally do that. But what I want you to see is that he has chosen not to do that. And I don't know all of the reasons why, but I know it's clear he has chosen not to do that. Rather, he has chosen to use those whom he has reconciled to himself to go tell others about the reconciliation. To go be his ambassadors who speak with his authority and offer peace to his enemies. To go there and speak that so that others might be reconciled. Does this make sense to you? What an honor that is, right? What a privilege that is and what a responsibility that is. Suppose, suppose I got a call from the president tomorrow and he said, Chris, I want you to go to a meeting next week and represent me. I want you to go to a meeting next week and represent me and I want you to speak with my authority and I want you to work out a peace deal with somebody. How would I respond to that? I would say, Aaron, this is a good one, good one. You got me, you got me. (laughs) That's what I would do first. Secondly, I would say, You gotta be kidding me? Really you want me to do that? He'd say, Yeah, yeah, I do. I want I want you to do that. And then once it sunk in, I would think, What an honor. What an honor. The President of the United States wants me to represent him? an amazing honor that is. And I would feel honored by that. And I want you to feel that way. God, God has given you that responsibility. He said, I want you to go represent me to the nations. I want you to go represent me at your lunch table. I want you to go represent me in your school and at your work. What an honor that is, right? To be His ambassador. But also what a heavy responsibility it is, right? I would go into that meeting thinking, man, I don't want to mess this up. I want to be faithful to the one who has sent me. It's a huge responsibility. And so is preaching the gospel. So is being one of the reconciled. It's a huge responsibility. What an honor. And what a responsibility that we must take seriously. Paul says we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. That He would make an appeal through us is amazing. He doesn't have to do that, but He's chosen to. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the craziest phrase in this whole thing. When he says be reconciled in in, in English uh, grammar, this is a passive imperative. It is a command to have something done to you. Passive imperatives don't happen very often. Usually they are active imperatives. Go make disciples. Go baptize. Go teach. Those are active imperatives. Imperative means a command, right? And you go do that thing. But here it's a command. But it's a command to receive something. And this is very interesting, especially when we go back to the fact that we said the business of salvation is God's, right? It is He who does the work. It's He who does the reconciling, right? But here Paul says, by way of application, be reconciled. In other words, he's saying that your faith is of utmost importance in this. That you are not going to be reconciled automatically to Christ. That you are not going to be reconciled lazily to Christ. That you must believe in Him to be reconciled. He says, go be reconciled. The picture is, He's offering the reconciliation. Go receive it. Go receive it and be reconciled. No one, hear me clearly, no one will be reconciled. No one will be saved apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. No one in this room and no one on this planet will be saved, reconciled to God, apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. So what do I say to you? Believe! Believe! Trust in Him! He is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And then look at this last part. Man, if this doesn't get you going, there is really, really something wrong. He says, He made Him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Ha! Oh, that is a gospel bomb that should knock us all out, right? That's where we drop the mic and walk off the stage. Well, what else can you say about this? About this great exchange, about this double imputation, is what scholars call it, where He is given our sin. Our sin is counted as His, right? Right? Joe read about that. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Right? That's the imputation of our sin to him. The double imputation is that he gives his righteousness to us. Our sins are counted to him. His righteousness is counted to us. And that kind of righteousness is what is required in order to be justified. You get that, right? That's what... You read about, right? And Aaron read about that we don't have a righteousness of our own based on works of the law, but we have a righteousness that comes by faith, a righteousness that is not our own but is given to us. That's what we need. He made him who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned and should not have died. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah to that. He takes all of my bad stuff and gives me all of his good stuff? That's crazy! That's the gospel. That's what he offers. That's what he came to do, reconciling the world to himself. And I want you to hear this. It's the only way it could have worked. It's the only way it could have worked. It's the only way we could be reconciled to God because we would not clean ourselves up. We would not go without sinning. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot go without sinning. We cannot produce a righteousness of our own. He's got to give us His own righteousness. And He does that in Christ. That's why He can be just and the justifier of us all. It's good news, right? So, two applications. First, what is your perspective? today. That's where we started. What is your perspective? What's your perspective on Christ? What's your perspective on other people? What's your perspective on missions? And I'm telling you, if that perspective has not changed at some point in your life, I don't think you've been converted. I don't think you've been saved. I don't think you've been reconciled. Because once we are reconciled, everything changes. Our point of view changes entirely. What is your perspective? For believers, here's the application. God gave us a ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to Himself in Christ. He made His own Son bear our sin, suffer our wrath, die our death, and He gave us His righteousness and His life, right? He reconciled us, forgave us of our sins, and He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Who told you about this ministry of reconciliation? Somebody, right? You didn't dream it. You didn't make it up yourself. Somebody came to you and told you about the gospel, right? Everyone who's been saved in this room, I believe someone told them about Jesus. The second question is, who have you told about Jesus? He has reconciled us and he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. If you've been reconciled, be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. How selfish of us to receive it and not tell someone else. For unbelievers... This is the glorious great truth of the gospel. God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He is forgiving sins and we need forgiveness because we are sinful. And this only happens, this reconciliation, this salvation only comes through Christ. Christ is the center point of it all. This little baby grew up, right? This little baby grew up, died on a cross and rose again. And he is the one who can change you. He is the one who can save you. He is the one who can rescue you. Call out to him. Believe in him. Run to him. Trust in him. Follow him. And everything will change for you. Your perspective on everything will change. This is what I want for you at Christmas time. This is the gift I want you to get at Christmas time. It's the gift that I beg you to receive. So let me say with Paul, I beg you, be reconciled to God. He's done the work. He's done the work. He's he's sacrificed, slaughtered, crushed in the words of Isaiah, his own son. Be reconciled to God through Christ. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the truth of reconciliation. Thank you for the gospel of grace and forgiveness and peace. Thank you for Jesus who died and rose again. Thank You for that sacrifice, that substitution, that atonement, that propitiation. God, thank You, thank You, thank You for all of that. I pray today that You'll bring it home to unbelievers, to lost and hopeless people. God, bring it home to them. Show them that is what they need. Show them that is their only hope and let them, let them respond. You give them faith. You give them repentance. You change their lives and You get all the glory God, will you do that today? And for those of us who have received reconciliation, who trust in Christ alone for justification, who have been saved by grace through faith in him, God, help us to be busy about the ministry of reconciliation, the act of proclamation of the gospel, the good news. God, you've given us a lot of open doors in the next four weeks. A lot of open doors, as is, is even the most secular people we know talk about Christmas. Help us to walk through those doors and proclaim the gospel. Help us to be busy about the ministry of reconciliation at Christmas. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.